The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Let's pray. Father, we read in your word of great joy possible. Exultation possible as we seek refuge in you. We read in your word about how you put favor over your people. And we respond to that by saying, Lord, now we respond by saying thank you. Thank you that you would do that. Thank you that you would be a refuge, that you would put favor on us, that you would provide joy for us. Thank you. And we're sorry. Because as I look at my own life and as we look at our lives, we have sought refuge in countless other places. Forgive us, please. And this morning, I pray, graciously invite us back. Woo us. Lure us. Draw us. You say in the text, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And so God, I pray in loving grace, would you draw us back to our joy? You as refuge. Please do that this morning through your word. You have for us an ancient passage today. Run through your word and speak it into our hearts and minds and produce change in it, in us through it. Make us a people who more closely reflect you and your value. What you want, what you aspire for your people to be, and what you want for us to know and experience. Lord, work through your word in the midst of this your gathered people. And I pray, Lord, for your gathered people across the globe today, some even meeting at this very hour, some have met, some have yet to meet. Lord, amongst your gathered people, would you run by your Spirit through your Word and mature them and grow them and bring honor to Christ and and make your bride spotless and beautiful? You said you would. Do that across the globe. Do that here in our midst, I pray. That Christ may be glorified as He draws to Himself a people pure, without blemish. And that we would be blessed as we are that pure, spotless bride, finding our joy in You. Do that kind of work this morning from this passage in the book of Deuteronomy, I pray. 
In Christ's name, Amen. As we've been working through this book of Deuteronomy, which is really, as I've said, one long sustained teaching from Moses to the people of God as they're poised on the banks of the Jordan River. So we've been working through that. We've seen that Moses passes through a number of different themes as he's preparing them for what lies ahead. The previous couple of chapters covered some systems and structures and some of the key offices that would go into this nation that was forming Prophets and priests and kings and judges and court systems. And all of those people and all those systems and structures are going to play a role in this country that's that's about to be formed. It's coming up. Moses had done it, but now he's passing it out to others. As we've looked at that, we've, we've been thinking about what does that mean? What do all those things mean for us as the new covenant community? Because a significant change has happened. He's talking about a nation, that's, that's a country that's forming, and that's not us. There's a difference there. Uh, how do we take this and bring it to us? And, and that, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he walked through and pointed out, this is about me. How do we take this with that mindset and find in it application for us, the New Covenant community. That's the challenge we've been facing. We've talked about that repeatedly. How do we move towards Christ? How do we find what is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training? It's here. We need to look for it. That's the task before us again today as we move into Deuteronomy chapter 19. And it is especially difficult for us because this following section, beginning in 19 and, and several chapters on, is loaded with civil law. If you read through these chapters, you see sometimes connected by themes and sometimes not really connected by anything, just stated. There are all kinds of commandments and stipulations and statutes and rules and laws that are an elaboration on the second table of the Ten Commandments. Remember the second half of the Ten Commandments? The the part, numbers 5 through 10, that deal with people and people. The first part of the law deals with people and God, and the second part is people and people. And now we're coming to a whole lot of people and people. A whole lot of civil law is coming up. And we need to think carefully, how do we apply this to the New Covenant community? There's a theme for us this morning, chapter 19, This is going to help us to think about how we apply this. There's a theme that connects the three different sections of the chapter we're going to look at today. Namely, the protection of innocent people. Shelter from injustice. Shelter from abuse or being used, particularly in relation to to physical life. So we're going to be looking at today God's protection and provision for justice, His protection of innocence. We're going to move at that subject through Deuteronomy chapter 19. So let me read the passage, all of chapter 19, verses 1 to 21. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession, so that any manslayer can flee to them. 
This is the provision for the manslayer, who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally, without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood in hot anger Pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die, since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore, I command you, you shall set apart three cities. And if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has sworn to your fathers and gives you all the land that he promised to give to your fathers, provided you are careful to keep all this commandment, which I command you today, by loving the Lord your God and by walking ever in his ways, then you shall add three other cities to these three, lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, and so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days, the judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Deuteronomy chapter 19. Verses 1 to 13 are concerned with the idea of the city of refuge. God had already designated three of those cities on the eastern side of the Jordan River that they'd already conquered. They already had a couple of these cities set up, and he's now establishing three more, possibly six more, on the other side of the river. They cross over and conquer the land. They are to set up these cities, and they were to be strategically located, you know, all measured out there, so that the manslayer could flee to them. Now, the manslayer is defined in verse 4 as someone who kills, slays, a man, or a woman, or a child, of course, another person, unintentionally, without anger or motive. This is an accidental killing, like the example given in verse 5. And the city of refuge is a provision for the manslayer so that he can run to it in the case of this accidental death and himself save his life. Now, as we've seen before, there are 
more details about these cities of refuge in other places in the law. And you may know some of them. You can read about them. Numbers chapter 35, for instance, is a place to look. But what is emphasized here in this chapter, how Moses writes at this time, and he knows that his audience already knows the other stuff, so he writes at this time emphasizing something. The emphasis that rises here in Deuteronomy is that God is providing a way for this manslayer to avoid injustice. He's providing a way for him to be protected from being murdered. You see it there. The idea is that the avenger of blood, who probably was next of kin for this person who was just killed, is going to be angry. He's going to be overcome with grief and fury, and he might chase him down and kill him unjustly. This guy's not guilty before the law. He, he didn't commit a crime, but this man in hot anger is going to kill him. And so to protect him from that, he's going to flee away to this city. And God is very careful to establish these cities in places where they can get to them in time. He's protecting the innocent man from unjust death. The land would be contaminated by innocent blood. He doesn't want that, so he protects the people from that. However, in verses 11 to 13, if a murderer actually tries to go there and hide, that doesn't work. That guy will be turned over to the legal system. When found guilty, he would be the death penalty given to this nation. The civil penalty there was death. So that would be executed. Now, when you read something like in in verse 13, your eyes shall have no pity on him. Purge the evil. This is the first time you've been here and you've seen this. That might kind of strike you as a little harsh. So I don't want to belabor this point because I've talked about it a number of times before, but I do need to point out, if this is your first time, this comes up a lot in the book of Deuteronomy. This phrase, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. It's, It's twice in this chapter, verse 19 as well. Your eyes shall have no pity. You shall do this. And when God uses that kind of language, what he's doing is he's putting his finger on something that is very important and very dangerous to his people. It's easy to see in this case, murder not dealt with would be a problem. He talks about the the blood guilt on the land. The problem. And so he's very clear, this must be dealt with. It must be purged out from among the people. And that same phrasing is used in the New Testament speaking to us the new covenant people, the church, but not with the death penalty. We don't have civil law responsibilities. This is the government that he's talking to. This is a legal system, which is not us. But he does use the same language and he attaches it to something, church discipline in the New Testament. An equally serious and effective way of dealing with sin among the people of God. So we read this in the Old Testament and we have to think two things. We have to think that's serious. We cannot just dismiss it and throw it out. And we also have to think what he says in the New Testament about that is a little bit different. So we need to be careful. Verses 1 to 13, the city of refuge, a place where a person can run and can be protected from being unjustly killed. Verse 14 has some then connection, some conceptual connections to what surrounds it. Not with life, but with livelihood. You can't steal land. In an agricultural setting, land is life. They are the same thing. Land grows the food that you eat. Without land, you starve. 
And so he says here in a simple verse, you can't steal land. You can't move these boundary markers and therefore steal land. And later in the book, he's going to pronounce a curse on that. Don't do it, it's unjust. And then 15 to 21, another type of injustice that threatens life and livelihood, false accusation in court. He's pursuing justice for the innocent in court proceedings, requiring multiple witnesses. Not ever that, not that one witness always is lying, but that one witness is liable to be a problem, to maybe misunderstood something or to have a malicious intent, or an axe to grind, or or to be out to get someone. And so you need, if you're going to convict somebody, you need multiple witnesses. And if upon investigation you find out that a single witness has actually borne false witness, make sure it's true, and then turn back to that person what he was attempting to do to this other person, the innocent one. An eye for an eye, a foot for a foot. Which again in our culture, sometimes comes across as, man, the Old Testament is harsh. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Well, well, think here. This is a legal system. And two things are going on. One, it is attempting to provide a deterrent. You notice, this is how you will purge it, and people will hear and fear and will not do that again. It's a law attempting to stop this sort of dangerous crime. It's a deterrent. People are less likely to do something if they know it's actually going to fold back on them. But secondly, read it from a little different perspective, it's establishing commensurate compensation. It's making the punishment match the crime. It's not a life for a foot. It's only a life for a life. It's a foot for a foot. The punishment matches the crime. It's actually serving as a limit, not just a guide as to here's how you punish, but here are the bounds within which you punish. You can't kill somebody for a foot. You can't kill somebody for a finger. You can kill somebody for trying to kill somebody, but only for that. Establishing a deterrent, and compensate, compensating, matching punishment, because justice is the goal, the strong desire to defend the innocent in court, in the field, and in a city of refuge. That's the passage. Three different sections establishing laws and structures for this budding nation, which we aren't. We don't have civil authority. What are we to do with this? What's, what's useful here to teach and correct and rebuke and encourage? And where do you see the one who is the end of the law? The one that the law is pointing towards? Christ. Where is he? So we need to think about here today. I'm going to try to sum this up in the following sentence. And then I'm going to unpack it in a couple of observations. So here's my main point for this morning. God intends for us to live out and live in his commitment to shelter the innocent from destruction. God intends for us, His people, to live out and to live in, to live out, to match, and to live in His commitment to shelter the innocent. 
We're going to just break that in half and make two observations about the live out and the live in. Start with the first one. I'm going to express this as a command because it is God's word coming to us, instructing us. Live out God's commitment to shelter the innocent from destruction. He intends for people to express it in our beings, in our lives, in in how we live, what we do. We live it out. Live in a way that matches His commitment to shelter the innocent. The text, I think, makes clear that God is committed to this. It's, It's the theme that runs through these three sections. There's an innocent man in the first section. Running for his life. He does not deserve to die, it says. So he runs to a place that God provided to shelter him. There's an innocent man in the second section who owns this land and it is taken from him. There's an innocent man in the third section who stands in court falsely accused. The theme throughout there, God is saying, I'm against that. I want to prohibit that from happening. And he creates a couple of structures and passes some laws to make sure that does not happen, to to ideally remove it entirely from the people, such that that kind of injustice never happens. And that is a good thing. We need to kind of get this in our mind. When we hear the command from God, we, we often hear it, and we should hear it, as command. I'll say it like that. Command. Not thought. Command. But we need to hear in that a command from God is good. Think about this. Can you imagine a country in which one accidental killing leads to another killing, leads to another killing, leads to... Yes, you can imagine a country like that because they exist everywhere. Cultures in this country operate like that. Where revenge killing runs the day, and those are terrible places to live. Or can you imagine the destruction caused by the theft of livelihood? Sure you can imagine that. Or what about the destruction caused by frivolous accusation? Often the mere fact of being accused is enough to destroy a person. Which is why we have laws about that in the United States, attempting to prohibit that sort of thing. You just have to accuse somebody, a person, or or a company, and often that's enough to destroy them. These, These kinds of things ruin society, and God is very good and very gracious to prohibit in command. But that not be the case. It's a sign of His good love for people, creating a good society for them. However... Just as we discussed when we're looking at the Ten Commandments themselves, the the moral law, and after all, what we're looking at here is just the extension of the moral law. What we have here, the Sixth, the Eighth, and the Ninth Commandment, right here. Murder, theft, false witness. We go back to the moral law, and we talked about it back then in chapter 5 as well. There is good reason to see God's love in creating a society with all these good things in it, but but that's not the main point. The root of God's commandments is God Himself. What stands behind God's Word is God's character. So, 
we look at verses 4 to 6 here, the protection of the city of refuge for the one who can save his life. Or verse 10, it says, wants to prevent innocent bloodshed, the loss of innocent life. 13, he's going to punish the murderer who took innocent life. God is strongly, three times right there, strongly against killing innocent life. Why? Because the Sixth Commandment says so. Yes. Why does it say so? Because of what people are. Because of what people are. On the first page of the Bible, God tells us that He made human beings, every single one of us, that He made human beings as image bearers who would bear, who would carry His image. That's what we are, fundamentally. He made humans, not as gods, not to be gods, but to display God. To bear His image. Think of a, of a picture, or, or maybe a mirror. If you look at a mirror, you're not seeing the object but you sort of are. This is the object, so this is not the object, but it's a reflection of it. And you can get a pretty good idea if you look closely. And what God has said is that He's made human beings, people, as bearers of His image, different than all of the rest of the creation. In unique and profound ways, human beings reflect image God. We are like Him, different than all the other created things. God longs to display Himself because He is beautiful. He is a glorious being, the most glorious of all beings. And He longs to display Himself. And so He made people to be walking around, bearing His image, showing Him off. And so we, we live with the capacity for thought and feelings and emotion, and relationship, and community. We have a spiritual component, just like Him. We understand and we display characteristics that are right at the core of God. We love and we long for justice. And we love and we long for mercy. And we love and we long for love. And grace, and wisdom, and creativity, and beauty, and power, and on and on and on. In countless ways, who we are created, who we are is a reflection of God. We are image bearers of Him. And what murder is, is the presumption of one of those fellow image bearers that He will rise up and be God and reign over this other one and by His own reasoning, for His own purposes, in His own power, reach out and snuff out that light. It is a high offense against God. It takes the throne away from Him and destroys His work and strikes a blow against His image. And so God says, you shall not do that. You shall not destroy my image bearers by killing them, by destroying their livelihood, by destroying their lives with deceit. You shall not. 
I made them to reflect me. I have a unique, intimate relationship with them. And you cannot kill them. You cannot destroy them. Which is a good thing. Is it not? It is a command, which is a really good thing. Don't you kind of innately sense value in people? Don't you sense that? It's a good thing that God protects that by command. Prohibits striking the image of God. And he prohibits any other twisting of God's image. This God who is himself truth. And his image bearers will will deceive and lie? No. This God who is himself generous and gracious and gives and his image bearers will steal? No. He is committed to block, stop, thwart all of this twisting of his nature. To shelter innocent people from experiencing it. And that's why he instructs in Deuteronomy 19, his people, to structure their country and their civil law code, thus and so, to protect people. That's a country, not us. What do we do with that? Well, there is at least one specific structure that's implied, and we've talked about it before. When we see that phrase, Purge the evil from your midst. Our minds should leap to the New Testament and think church discipline and church mediation. There is a structure there. I've talked about that before. I want to set it aside because I think primarily what this calls for in us, the people of God, is a change in attitude. It challenges, it confronts, perhaps convicts, calls for a change in the attitude within us Put it as a question to you. Are you keenly concerned to help, protect, look out for, shelter, deal justly with the innocent image bearers of God? He is, are you? Or... Are you most concerned with what is profitable, expedient, comfortable, easy, and natural? Which is it? Are you sensitive to those who are vulnerable and may need an advocate? May need help in some way? Are vulnerable to and often are being used by the world that we live in? Are you sensitive to them? Now, what exactly specifically you do, it's very difficult to be specific because the applications are many and varied and complex. But I think the first place it has to start is, is in the heart attitude. Are you sensitive to that? To them? Now, I would guess, I don't know everybody here, but I know a lot of people here, and I would guess that most of us are not walking through the day consciously attempting to use or abuse or exploit or deceive or steal or kill the innocents around us. I would guess that most of us aren't living there. Consciously. But pause for a minute and ask yourself about what you do unconsciously. 
What rolls off your tongue in regards to others? Have you assassinated anybody's character? Destroyed their reputation with malicious words? Slander, with accusation, with gossip? To lift yourself up, your own cause up at their expense. You know, when Jesus talked about murder, the sixth commandment, he did not stop at physical life-taking. He said, you should, you've heard it said, you shall not kill. I tell you, and then he moved on to what? To anger, to scorn, and verbal abuse. And he equated the two. One kills with a sword, one kills with a tongue. They both kill, says Jesus. you have anything to repent of? How about your business practices to touch on another area? Do you speak accurately about your competitors? Do you tell your clients the truth? Speak honestly of and to co-workers, or are you stealing livelihood from them or from others? Or in government and politics, do you champion justice? And support the value of innocent life. Again, to attempt to touch on any specific law is, is neither my place nor doable in this setting. Because everything is, is so very complex. But where it needs to start is with an attitude change so that we come to any political debate. You read about something in the paper and you come to it with eyes that say, I... I hold on to and I want to live out God's value to defend the innocent. Where is that in this issue? Likely to be very complex. But if you come to it with that attitude, you're more likely to see it. And I think that at the very least, I have to point out, the protection of innocent, unborn human life must be of great value to the people of God. There are millions of people who cannot run to any city of refuge. Someone has to advocate for them. Graciously, kindly, prayerfully and clearly. We are to live out God's commitment to shelter the innocent from destruction. In your life here in the church, in your family, in your workplace, everywhere. You are, we are, you are, we are to be a people like that. We walk out of here, we carry God's values with us, and they affect how we live, how we talk, what we do. May He give grace to you to work that attitude change, and it needs grace because fundamentally we are all bent towards ourselves. We are most consistently oriented, and if we stop thinking, our eyes unconsciously turn back towards ourselves. May He give grace to you to turn you out and cause you to see people who are vulnerable and at threat of injustice. 
May he give you that grace. And we need to see that. That's the first observation. He wants us to live this out. We need to see that he expects it of his people. That's what he's doing in the chapter, pressing it into this community. That being said, the whole first point being said, I think that for me, as I deal with this passage, the part of it that, that has the most profound impact on me, the, the part that's most precious to me, is a whole lot more personal. That moves us to the second observation. The first observation, in the first observation, we take a stance of looking at this text as the community of God. He's speaking to us as a people, what are we supposed to be and do? What we find is that he means for us to be a sheltering people. But he also means for us to be a sheltered people. He means for us to be a sheltering people and he means for us to be a sheltered people. Secured in the best refuge of all, God himself. That's the second observation. So let me put that also as an exhortation to us. Live in God's blessing of being your shelter. Live in God's blessing of being your shelter from destruction, from danger, from threat, from fear, from devastating sorrow, from injustice, from things that aren't fair, from stuff you don't deserve, from things that strike you out of the blue and you have to deal with. He means to be your shelter in all of that. Live in it. We take this passage and read it from a different perspective. As the innocent one, as the manslayer running to the city, what do you find there? You find a good God who is bent on defending you. Who has gone so far as to create legislation and to geographically structure the land so as to shelter you. To protect your very life from misguided human vengeance. To protect your livelihood from those who would steal it. To eliminate, to purge out of the land all of that that would threaten to tear you down and ruin you. That becomes immediately apparent if you change the perspective and you see yourself as falsely accused standing in court. You're thankful that God has acted like this. But something else becomes, a split second later becomes apparent too, I think. God aims for this in the text. Bless God. That He aims to defend me. Bless God. That doesn't work. It doesn't happen. At least not consistently. The Bible even says so. Read through the prophets. How did chapter 19 work out for Israel? Read through the prophets. Hosea 6, for instance. When a litany of problems has come to Israel, he lists their two cities of refuge. Cities of refuge. And describes them as cities of evildoers tracked with blood full of murder. 
You run off to the city of refuge, praising God for his provision to get killed there. That didn't work. The Bible is is quite clear. Here's a good and gracious provision that failed. Your life proves it too. Doesn't it? How far do you have to look in your own life? God intends to shelter His people and yet you are still falsely accused and they get away with it. Or maybe you've been victimized by a significant financial blow that you did not deserve. And no, nobody stole your land, probably, but they stole a deal or they stole a client or they stole your car. Or... Somebody got away with a crushing, vindictive assault. Maybe a physical attack, verbal attack. You weren't actually killed, but it felt like it. And the repercussions have been nothing. So you read this, and you look at it, and you say, yes. And then you look at your life, and you say, what? What's going on here? They miss. I need, I mean, what, what this is about, I need that. You need that. We need a strong and sure shelter. And God clearly intends it here. And sin has ravaged this world that we live in. Suffering and affliction and injustice stalk us every moment here under the sun. If it's not stalking you at this very moment, just wait. It'll come. You know it. In this world, we will have much trouble. Jesus said so. It's true. We need a shelter. And Deuteronomy 19, just like all of the rest of the law, lays out something really good, really desirable in front of us. And it leads us to say yes. And then it's like being brought to water and denied the ability to drink. Shelter, refuge, amen, where? I want that, I need it. It's not here. Where? The whole Old Testament is trying to create that tension in you. That is a good and marvelous and wonderful thing. I can just imagine what it would be like, but I have to imagine it because I don't live it. Where is it? End of the law is who? Who is it? Jesus. The whole Old Testament, the whole law is trying to create this tension. I need a refuge. I want a shelter. I need to be protected. And I'm not. Who will do this? Jesus. He is our great shelter. First, a refuge from the greatest of all threats that we face. The threat of God's wrath against our sin. It's the refuge that's assumed behind this refuge. You notice there's an assumption working through here. The people who are sheltered are innocent. Before the law, they are guiltless. The one who's guilty before the law is not sheltered. 
The person who's falsely accused, the person who does not deserve to die, the person who actually owns the land, those are the ones that God acts to protect. How do you get to be one of those God acts to protect? How do you become clean, innocent before the law? That's an important question. That's the first assumed question behind this. I know a lot of us understand this. Walk through it again in your mind. How do you become righteous before God? How do you become innocent in His eyes? Not by anything we have done. By His grace and by His mercy. What we have done is to break the law. What we have done is to invite upon us the wrath of God. And what He has done in Jesus, sending God the Son to earth in a body, what He has done is made Him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. So that in Him we could then become the righteousness of God. You're the switch there. I, you, locked in sin under the wrath of God. Jesus, God in flesh, pure, no sin, no wrath from God. And God made Him who knew no sin to become sin so that in Him I might become the righteousness of God. That's how you can stand righteous before Him. That's the only way you can stand righteous before Him. He is a refuge from the wrath of God. Run to Him. He will shelter you from the wrath of God and He is the only shelter that there is. Run to Him. Trust Him to shelter you and He will. Now, I realize that most of us here have, have already closed with Christ. You've already trusted Him and he, and he is your refuge. But do you understand what that means? Intellectually, sure. You understand what that means. Do you understand what that means? What that means for you, Christian, is that He has become passionately concerned to shelter you. Passionately. He's not indifferent about it. He is a refuge for you. So you have to approach this issue of, Right now in my life, I don't live sheltered. What, what's going on? I have Jesus as a shelter, but I'm not living sheltered. You have to approach that tension with the understanding that He is passionately concerned to shelter you. The answer does not lie, this, the answer to this tension does not lie in the fact that He's not aware and doesn't care. Life somewhere else. There is an answer. You come at this aware of the character of God. He is for you. Christian, you're in Christ. He is for you. Passionately concerned to save. Which does not always mean to save your physical life and well-being. We don't have to look any further than Jesus to realize that. 1 Peter 2 recounts how he was reviled cursed, accused, beaten, and then condemned, though he was without sin. God the Father is passionately for God the Son, and he let all that happen on purpose. And if it happened to him, it will happen to us. 
there's something going on here. He is not, in saying that he is passionately concerned to shelter you, he is not always passionately concerned to right now, here in this moment, shelter you physically. Better than that. He is passionately concerned to shelter your soul, which is where you really live anyway. You really live in the heart. And you know that because you have experienced joy amidst physically painful circumstances. And you have experienced misery amidst bountiful blessing. Life is really lived in the heart. And so for God to be passionately concerned to shelter you in here is a great blessing. And that's what He's after. Now one day, yes... One day, yes, He will clean up all the mess out here in the physical world. That day is coming. It will be a glorious day. He will set the world right. He will wipe away every tear and wipe away every cause for tear. We should have that in mind. We should have that before our eyes. That day is coming gloriously. But it is not here yet. Why? Because He wants to shelter your soul. And He knows how to do that. He will use trial and tribulation to shelter your soul. Think about it like this. I read a story in a book by Stu Weber, who, was, who is a pastor and author and who was a Green Beret. He's put those two things together. Must be an interesting guy. He tells a story about going through ranger training school and skipping through a number of the details. There's one particular part of this school where he and another ranger candidate are paired together and sent out into the Florida, it seems like a swamp basically in Florida, sometime in the winter for several days on end and they have to get from point A to point B with nothing but what they're carrying on them, obviously. And it's... 40-ish degrees, raining, it's a swamp, the whole place is flooded. Going over hill and dale with this one other guy, two of them together. The final day, they come to the the pinnacle of, of their endeavor here. They have to cross what is essentially a flooded river. So it's, it pictures a river that's become like a floodplain. 40 degrees, raining, If they end up soaking their clothes, they might well die of exposure. So they take off their clothes and with their ponchos form a little float and they put all their clothes and their weapons and whatnot on this float and in their underwear, wade, swim, fight through the flooded river. And he he recounts how they're, they're crashing into all the tree roots that are underwater and they can't see him and getting beaten up and skinned up and they're fighting through this water and they come to the channel where the current is swiftest And that's all they can do to keep the raft from getting swamped, to keep themselves from being carried downstream. They're locked arm in arm, holding onto the raft, one arm on one other guy, one arm on the raft, kicking and fighting across this river. They get to the other side and they get out on solid ground, dripping wet, exhausted, beaten, bruised, at the point of hypothermia, standing in their underwear. And they hug each other and cry like babies.
a bond formed that does not form at three o'clock on Tuesday around the water cooler. It doesn't. You, you might like that person that you work with in the office, but that does not happen while you're standing around talking about the game last night. But it does happen in the midst of trial and tribulation. You learn what a friend is. You learn what a shelter is, what a companion is, without whom you would drown. And all the separating barriers get torn down. Those two men would not stand in their underwear and hug on the parade ground. They wouldn't. None of us would. But they did there. Something happened there amidst that trial. And God knows, moving this to the spiritual realm, God understands that. Which is why He says in 1 Peter 1, Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Perhaps you felt unsheltered in those various trials, grieved by them, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire. Why is faith more precious than gold? Because faith is what fastens you to Christ. More precious than gold may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him with your eye, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. With joy inexpressible and filled with glory. Because you can't see Him with your eyes, but you see Him. You found Him amidst the trial. Which is why you can rejoice amidst trials. What you're going to find there is joy inexpressible and filled with glory. A bond will form. You will find the answer. What shall separate me from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, nothing in all of the creation can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus my Lord. A bond will form there. And right there is your refuge. Your refuge is a God who loves you passionately and is passionately committed to growing in your soul relationship with Him. Which means He may set your body aside. You'll get it back one day. But He may set it aside for the moment, for the sake of your soul, and joy inexpressible, filled with glory in there. 
as you find him and fasten to him in a way you cannot do otherwise than in trial. You will find him when that bond forms, you will find him to be an impregnable fortress whose walls can never be breached or undermined. Hidden in this strong tower of the everlasting love of God, you will not be moved. He is the strongest of all cities of refuge amidst storms, not instead of. Run to Him. Run to this refuge. How do you do that? You take up the Word and you say, show yourself to me. You take up the Word and you say, help me to believe this. I believe it. Help me to believe it a little more. I see you. Help me to see you a little more. I intellectually understand it. Drive it into my heart. That's running to Him. He's not physically here. You run to Him by going to His Word and in prayer saying, meet me. Use this truth to change my mind and cover my heart with it. Fundamentally, it's a supernatural work. There are not three steps and poof, it happens. Fundamentally, it is a supernatural work. But we go to the place where God says He supernaturally works. In His Word, by His Spirit, amongst the people of God. Not by ourselves, apart from the Word and the Spirit. Run to Him. Live in this. Live in God's blessing of wanting to be your shelter. It may mean that that trial comes. It, It probably does mean that trial comes. Find Him to be your shelter in the trial. Run to Him. Live in God's blessing of being your shelter from destruction. And then live that out for others. Being a shelter for them. Being an aid, an assistant to them, a defender of them. Live out and live in God's commitment to shelter the innocent from destruction. Let me pray. Gracious Father, would you do a work in each of us here in this moment to take and sift through all the many words that I have spoken and speak the right ones again by your Spirit and plant them as good seed in good soil, well watered. They would grow and produce life in these people here. Lord, those here who don't know you, would you draw them and show yourself to be a shelter and a rest for all who trust, for all who hope in Christ. And for those of us here who do hope in you, Lord, help us to hope again. 
Thank you for what you have provided. We bless your name. We hope for the fullness of your coming and thank you that you live with us now. We cannot see you, but we can see you. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.